Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. I'm really excited today because I got my buddy, um, George Pirro. Uh, so it's good to have you here on the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, having me on the podcast. I'm uh, extremely excited and uh, very looking forward to, uh, uh, to hanging out with you and uh, having a great conversation. Thank you, buddy. So many of you may not know who George Pirro is because, you know, there's not a doctor in front of that. And um, even though you have beautiful straight teeth, you're not a dentist. Uh, but what I, you, we were introduced through uh, our mutual friend, Andre Arlovsky, who's uh, uh, about to be what the most winning champion in UFC, UFC history is one win away from that. That's correct. He's currently tied for the most UFC uh, wins in UFC history. So just one more and he takes the title most wins in UFC history. That's awesome. Um, but he, he's our mutual friend. And um, naturally, he told me some cool stuff about you. I went on the Google machine and looked you up. And I'm like, damn, this is pretty neat. I watched a 60 minute clip on 60 minutes clip. You had like a, you know, a good clip back from uh, right around the mid 2000s uh, on some of your history. But I was really excited when uh, you said you would do this because, you know, when, when the line of work that you do, you, you know, uh, and for those that you don't know, um, George Pirro, I'm, I'm going to say it, although he doesn't like me to say this, he's what I consider to be one of the most famous FBI agents in history, because he was the guy that was in charge of interrogating the former Iraqi dictator, Saddam Hussein, some of you may remember that name. Um, so we'll touch on that in a minute. But when I asked you to do this, um, you were so gracious to say you would. But what I see is I see a peak performer in you because uh, not only do you have this amazing law enforcement career, but uh, you, you have a, you know, a new passion and you're rising through that in your martial arts career. So I see like an artist performer, you know, a, a high, high performer because you, you're taking on these new things and, and, and going forward and, and becoming top in your field. And the people that listen to this podcast, that's what I hope for them as well, that they're constantly learning and taking on new skill sets. So um, I'm really thankful that you decided to do this. So thanks for the time. Um, Absolutely. I'm very excited, to, uh, actually, uh, you know, to have this opportunity and, uh, you know, just to be able to uh, you know, be on your uh, podcast. Thanks, buddy. So tell me, you, you, I know you speak many languages. So let's just get, I, let me understand that. So you're, you're, you're a Syrian is your background, correct? That's correct. So my ethnicity is uh, Assyrian. Uh, but I was born and raised in uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Okay. You know, Patrick Bet David, who's also on this podcast, I believe he's a Syrian too, correct? That's correct. Yeah, but he was um, born in Iran. So there's almost like a diaspora of the Assyrians, correct? Is that what, they're not from one specific Arab uh, nation? Exactly. So the Assyrian Empire used to encompass what is now uh, today Iraq, Iran, parts of Syria, Turkey. Uh, but when the Assyrian Empire collapsed, Assyrians were forced to flee throughout the entire region. Uh, and now you'll have Assyrians from Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Russia, uh, and of course, uh, a, a growing uh, Assyrian community or population here in the United States. Where are they in the U.S.? Where's the biggest population centers here in the U.S.? Can I guess? <laughs> is it LA? Uh, LA is pretty big, but the largest Assyrian population is in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, I wouldn't have no idea. Yeah, I will never leave LA without going for at least Persian food for some Iranian food. But anyway, so you grew up in Lebanon. How old were you when you left? So my family and I were very, very fortunate that we were uh, able to escape the civil war that was uh, 
uh, going on at the time. It was a very, very difficult uh, and dangerous uh, time. So we fled when I was about 12. We actually got on a small boat, uh, fled Beirut uh, on a small fishing vessel, made our way to Cyprus, and then made the long journey to the United States. How and, old were you on that boat trip? I was 12. Oh, so wow. ironically, uh, I was just going through some of my old uh, stuff, and I found uh, we entered the United States uh, 43 years tomorrow. Oh, no way. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah, how years ago tomorrow, we that we is awesome. the United States in San Francisco. So you're a 12 year old boy, you get to San Fran, you said? Yes. So you grew up over there in California? Yes, we grew I grew up in Northern California. Okay, so how did how did the law enforcement career happen? What was your was it in your family uh, history to be, you know, certified, a, you know, kind of badasses here? Or how did, how did it all happen? Uh, actually, not at all. Uh, my dad wanted me to be a dentist. Yeah, my dad, Sorry, dad. Uh, um, that was my dad's goal was to be a dentist. And my dad worked for a, a, a dental manufacturing company in Lebanon. And when, when we immigrated to the United States, my, my dad's first job was with a, a small dental company in Des Moines, Iowa called Dentalese. They made chairs. And yeah, lights. we still, ha- I, I don't know if they're still in business, but I had those Dentalese chairs in my last office. Yes. So he wanted me to be a, a, a dentist, but I always wanted a career that, uh, you know, that was exciting, uh, that was adventurous, you know, a sense of belonging and, uh, and, and purpose. So I was drawn to uh, law enforcement. Uh, and my parents initially were not very excited at the idea, but, uh, you know, over, over time, they became very, very supportive. So you, George, you were local law enforcement at first, I presume, before the FBI? Uh, yeah, so uh, I became a naturalized U.S. citizen at 17. Uh, I enlisted in, uh, on my 18th birthday Wow! and I joined the Air Force and went into the law enforcement career field in the Air Force uh, and then also to get the, the GI Bill so that I could uh, pay for, for college. Oh, that's uh, awesome. I became a police officer at 21 in Northern California. Uh, where I grew up and was a police officer for roughly nine years and eight months uh, before I was able to uh, join uh, the FBI. At the time, I went back to night school using the GI Bill to pay for for my college, got my college degree, which the FBI requires, and uh, fortunately, was uh, very lucky to be accepted into the FBI. Oh, that's wonderful. So both you and I are a product of government program and initiative. I didn't tell you this, George, but you know the big building I have here, um, when I set out to build it in 2010, the, um, the only loan that I could qualify for was the Small Business Association. So another tool, much like the GI Bill, um, kind of fueling people to create, you know, government subsidized businesses. And, uh, you know, there, there was no way I could have ever put down the respective uh, down payment that would have been required. So the Small Business Association had me, you know, qualify for this. And since it was owner occupied, I got my start with that as well. So um, we both have a lot of uh, credit, uh, debt to, to, to repay to the country for, for those well, programs. Absolutely that. And uh, for me, of course, for the opportunity for my family and I to come to the United States and live out what I believe is the American dream. So you know, my service to my country is in a, in a way a small uh, payment for, uh, you know, for that opportunity. That's awesome. I have a quick story, actually. One of my patients, Vito, I've known him my entire life. He was my barber when I was a kid. And um, he uh, came here from Sicily in like 1950 something. He was 
18 years old and he applied for citizenship. And uh, actually, it was, in the, it was in the late 60s. I'm sorry, in the late 1960s. He gets an official letter from the government. He thinks it's his residency, his green card, and it's draft paperwork for Vietnam. He doesn't speak a word of English. He's been here for like less than five months. So everybody in Italy is like, just come back to Italy. He's like, listen, you know, I'm here for in America and I want to, uh, some people have to pay later. He's like, I have to pay up front. So similar to you, he went to Vietnam, infantry, learned English, basically in basic training and had to learn in the jungles of Vietnam. Um, and, and I've just gone through with all these photos he had, he, just such a love for the country that he, and, and the way you did it too, in service, uh, uh, prepayment, not, not, uh, not, not any other way. Absolutely. I mean, that's what makes our country, you know, the best country in the world is when you hear stories like that. And people have the opportunity to truly live out the American dream. And, and it's only limited by your own, uh, whether it's efforts or ceilings that you put for yourself or, you know, things like that. It's your narrative, actually, too. whatever you say, if you say there's limitations and granted, there are many people that have their own limitations, um, whether they're internal, external, but it's the conversations you have with yourself that kind of predicates your future. And I think uh, just knowing you like I do, I know you I, I know you believe that, too. So it's crazy where funding is going, right? You know, um, have you seen where interest rates have gone recently? Craig? Yeah, crazy, I know. crazy. And you're right. So banks are, are starting to kind of shrivel up and say, no, we're going to hold our money. Um, so I know Live Oak has not been in that scenario. They've been real cool with dentists. And we've had a lot of friends that have gone to them recently for, you know, expansions or practice. Rates are the rates, right? I'm not saying that, it, that it's this, 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 uh, this magical wand from a rate perspective, but at least it's still opening up the lending capacity because businesses, you know, money and capital for business is the oxygen we need to breathe. And if you take away the oxygen, all of a sudden now entrepreneurial dentists cannot grow and expand um, unless you just, you know, you're, you're, you're hogging all your cash flow into that, which you probably don't want to do either. So I know, yeah, but I've always, I've always found it's, it's the strategic knowledge that the bank has mm -hmm. that can help you. I, I've, I've gone to five banks before, four told me I was crazy, and one's like, oh my God, this is no brainer. Mm -hmm. And what I love about what Live Oak does is that they are specific. They have a dental specific division. They mm -hmm. work with the uh, SBA administration. Because let me tell you something, Peter, had it not been for an SBA loan for me in 2012, there's no flipping way yeah. I would be where I, I am right now. I had like, you know, 95% LTV, 90%. I didn't even know what it was, but without the SBA and the SBA programs have actually gotten more robust. So owner occupied, you know, wanting to expand, want to build your own building, all the things that Peter and I talk about. You don't want to go to just some generic bank. You want to go to a specific bank. And I'm just so impressed with LiveOak. They helped a lot of. Uh, it it seems also like more of a. How do I say this? Like for instance, if I were to just call random bank, Bank of America, let's just call it. Like I may get this the, the a different person every time I call. It seems like a more mm, high. Well, no, class you'll be boutique. told no yeah. because they don't. You won't get to the right person. Right. So I just you know you'll 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 speak to like some residential lender. They won't know what you're trying to do. They'll fit you into the programs that they can do and you'll get rejected. I know they also really give some rate. sweet. I know there is some, I don't know exactly the deal is, but they do have a preferential treatment for bulletproof listeners. So if they do mention us, yep. I, know, I don't even know. Um, we're pretty disorganized here, but I do know if they, <laughs> if they do mention yeah, no, they bulletproof, there's some, kind of, there's some kind of, there's some kind of, there's some kind of, you know, 
either either it goes right to Lindsay. I know Lindsay runs or, kind of the division. Or, or I think they take off an extra percentage point off your loan. I, Dude, I don't know about, about that. that. Tell about them that. the bulletproof guys that they're <laughs> dropping the loan a point. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. I'm sure I'd love to know where you've been uh, through your work. I know um, a big portion of what you did was in Iraq, but where else, whether, what other countries were, have you been to in your service? Uh, there are so many. I've, I've had an incredible career and I've uh, been so fortunate and privileged. Um, I would literally tell you, uh, I've visited every continent and uh, almost every country. Of course, my uh, long assignments have been in, uh, in the Middle East, Again, because I, I speak Arabic, so I've served in uh, Amman, Jordan. I've served in Abu Dhabi, uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, I've literally visited every country in the Middle East. I've done multiple uh, combat tours in uh, Iraq. Uh, I've done a combat tour in Afghanistan. Why com? I didn't know that combat tour. So can you explain that? I, I, I was that through the FBI? Yes. So. Uh, most people don't realize that the FBI is truly a global organization and our mission is to protect the American people and to uphold the constitution. After 9-11, we've recognized or realized that it's better for us to, uh, to go toward the threat and try to stop it before it gets to the United States when it becomes much more difficult for us than to try to uh, intervene and, and prevent an attack. So. Uh, you know, FBI agents uh, were on the ground uh, during the initial phases of uh, both the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. I didn't know that. In, we've been in Yemen, Somalia, Libya, uh, Syria. So the FBI is really committed to its mission of uh, you know, protecting the American people, not only here in the United States, but really worldwide. And uh, we have jurisdiction to do that as well, of course, working with our foreign partners. But we have offices all around the world uh, and very committed to to not only upholding our values, but really protecting Americans all over the world. Can you give me a, a brief history? When did the FBI start and what was its initial um, what what was what was the this branch of our government? How was it being handled prior to the FBI? So. Uh, the uh, the FBI's history is unique in the sense if you look at the FBI's history and then our country's history, the one agency or the one organization that our country has historically leaned on and depended on as it evolved and faced new challenges and threats have always been the FBI. So the FBI was created in 1908 at the time as a very small agency. It was made up of two dozen special investigators that were uh, created to address things like uh, uh, land fraud, uh, land disputes, and then uh, criminals crossing state lines to avoid prosecution and things like that, where there was no agency or mechanism to try to address those. So the Attorney General at the time, uh, Attorney General Bonaparte created the FBI to really address that. At the time, it was called Bureau of Investigation. As I mentioned, as our country evolved and the challenges that it faced um, not only changed, but became more complex, more violent, um, the FBI responsibility and authority began to, to grow. So for example, in the 20s and 30s, our country was facing 
you know, the gangster era, as it was called, right? Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, and, and uh, Dillinger. Uh, so there was really not a, a, a law enforcement agency that could address the violence that our cities were, were facing or experiencing, and then criminals that were going all over the country and uh, terrorizing uh, communities. So the FBI was given authority to carry weapons and then pursue mm -hmm. those criminals. Right. In the 40s, it was World War II, so the FBI's national security mission was then really cemented, which is now today's counterterrorism, counterintelligence. We established our first office in Latin America because the Nazis had established uh, bases there to spy on the United States and, and as well as to carry out uh, sabotage attacks. There was a, a German submarine that came uh, to shore here in South Florida with German saboteurs who were uh, uh, sent here to carry out attacks, but the FBI foiled that and arrested uh, the seven uh, saboteurs. 60s, it was civil rights. You know, that was the movement that was really affecting our country. The one agency that has the federal civil rights uh, investigative responsibility is the FBI still to this day, and we uphold the federal uh, civil rights laws. 70s and 80s, it was the savings and loan and the various uh, fraud schemes. And um, that's when the FBI really started to focus on that. We began to really hire accountants as you know, a lot of people think uh, the FBI is uh, focused on. Uh, of course, the 80s, 90s, it was the, uh, the gang violence and the drugs. So the FBI was given concurrent uh, authority or jurisdiction with DEA to try to address the violence as well as the, uh, the war on drugs as it was referred. The 90s and 2000, terrorism was the number one threat. So the FBI is the lead investigative agency when it comes to counterterrorism for the United States. And then now, as we face uh, foreign state powers such as China, Russia, uh, Iran, the agency that has that responsibility of protecting our national security is the uh, the FBI. So That's as, wild. Yeah, so as I mentioned, as our country evolved and the challenges that it faced uh, became more complex and um, more significant. The one agency that, uh, that our country has historically leaned on and relied on to protect it has been and will be the FBI. That's wild because it's, it's so many different iterations of FBI. The, the threats that you've mentioned over those decades are so different. It requires a whole different type of approach. And when you said combat missions, forgive me, but in my mind, I always think of the FBI as like, kind of like the men in black you in your suits and like I, I i think of it's behind it's in offices and closed doors are you guys you know do you guys oftentimes go and part of my ignorance but you guys go into combat areas and so in in uh, uh in those uh austrian environments we are embedded in uh military units uh generally special operations units uh to interesting to support uh, not only their mission, but to also advance uh, the FBI mission. So we will be embedded in a, uh, in, in a military unit. Uh, you know, for example, when I was in Iraq, again, being an Arabic speaker, uh, you know, allowed me to, to really have a different experience where uh, I was able to utilize my language skills, not only to advance FBI priorities or missions, but also assist you know, the military in their efforts. So. I would be going out uh, helping the military as we were uh, tracking some of the um, high value targets as they were called 
you know, from Saddam to, you know, the other key figures and try to uh, capture them uh, so that we could uh, 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 question them for, for intelligence and things like now, that. Now, is it like the movies, George, where people like don't tell their spouses what they're doing? Like, is there, are there, do you have colleagues that have had to tell their spouses that they work in like some other type of governmental department and they don't really know because they're so deep in there? Or is that not really happen? Because I'm thinking not, like- not, it, <laughs> not in the FBI. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah, but I mean, there's certain things you're working on that you cannot, I mean, let's talk about the interrogation of Saddam Hussein. When you actually were chosen to do that, did you realize at that moment the the gravity and the the responsibility that you had was it was it apparent to you at that very moment that this is holy smokes this is like a career defining thing or was it just another day at the office for you i mean it, it wasn't necessarily a career defining moment for me what i realized though what was at stake which was the bureau's uh, reputation and, and brand uh for me i recognized the the uh, the responsibility that i had in uh, preserving the FBI's legacy uh, and in our place as the premier agency in the world. So that that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of uh, pressure. You know, that interrogation, that was, that was the first interrogation of a former head of state to be conducted by the FBI and is still the longest interrogation in FBI history. So how long was it, George? Uh, nearly seven months straight. And it was you and him mostly or many others as well? No, is uh, he and I mostly. And um, I mean, it, it's interesting to say this, but a relationship is built when you meet with somebody every day for seven months, whether, you know, I mean, obviously, um, whether or not the person's nefarious or, or good intention, you build a relationship. I mean, I'm just curious, would he shake your hand when you walked in? Was it that no. type of? Of course. No, so you, you definitely have to build a relationship. And then the way the FBI conducts interrogations uh, we utilize a, a, a method called rapport-based. So we don't torture, we don't waterboard, we don't use any type of enhanced interrogation techniques. Everything that we do has to be admissible in, in court. So as a result, you know, there is that relationship between the uh, interrogator and, and the, uh, the subject. And with Saddam, I was spending anywhere from five to seven hours every single day with him. So of course, you're getting to know that person and that person is getting to, to know you. And for it to be really effective, you have to find that common ground, things that you have in common, things that you can connect. So there is absolutely a relationship that is being developed. For the interrogator, though, it's imperative that you keep it all in perspective. And, and I knew why I was there and the purpose of why I was there and what I was doing. So I never lost uh, uh, sight of that. You know, over time, we became very, very... Uh, uh, close in a sense. Uh, he, he became emotionally and psychologically uh, attached to me. So absolutely, uh, uh, you know, not only would he shake my hand, but we had a, a routine where we would drink coffee together every morning. We talked about literally everything that, uh, that you can imagine from history, politics, or sports, you know, things like that. Mm, so yep. um, it, was, uh, it was a very uh, uh, direct uh, uh, relationship and uh, engagement. And he was the way you, you could ascertain, I'm, I'm actually just, uh, um, let me ask it the question rather than declare it. Um, could you ascertain that he knew he was doomed? I mean, that he was the, the result of this 
process was going to be that he'd ultimately face the death sentence by the Iraqi people? Or did you, was he not sure of that? You know, at first, uh, I think he still uh, held on to, to some hope that he would return to, to power. But over that, over that seven months, part of that process uh, of, uh, of our interrogation was to instill uh, the truth or reality of his situation. So over time, it became very, very clear or evident to him that he was going to be prosecuted and most likely uh, be executed for, you know, for the atrocities that, uh, uh, which he never saw as atrocities, but the atrocities that he was ultimately responsible for. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, what do they say? Like prison is filled with innocent people. I mean, it's hard to think you're a bad person. So he has to do whatever he can. But um, that, that's incredible. Um, I, I, I can't wait for your book to come out. I'm hoping I'm, I'm really hoping, as I told you, that one day you do write that book or maybe star in your own uh, star in your own movie for that. That I can guarantee you isn't going to happen where I'm going to star in my own movie. If, if there well, is a movie, I want it to be successful. So it's well, not going to be with me in it. Well, one thing I can, uh, well, I believe is true. Um, just based, based on uh, the things I see on Instagram and your martial arts career. If there is a movie, you could do your own stunts. That's for sure. <laughs> so tell me about the martial arts career. Like how, like that, is that, that was that, was that training part of the FBI that planted the seed or where'd you get that martial arts uh, bug? No, I've actually been doing martial arts on and off my entire life. So when we first immigrated to the United States, uh, you know, of course, my parents were looking to to help my brother and I, who uh, my brother, who's only a year younger than me, to uh, assimilate into our, our new home and, and community. Uh, we didn't know English, so they were trying to look for ways to help us uh, learn English, make friends, assimilate. So, and the one thing that they knew we liked uh, was martial arts. So they signed us up uh, when I was about thirteen, uh, and to our first karate uh, dojo and and I began to study martial arts and have stayed with martial arts you know, on and on throughout my uh, uh, my life. I got really serious when I moved here to um, South Florida in uh, in 2014 and met my uh, my coach uh, Wilson Govea from American Top Team and I joined uh, American Top Team and shortly after of course, I got addicted to it and uh, took it to you know another level where where now I see it as a as a second career or profession uh, and and train uh, in a manner that you know that's uh, that fits of a you know full time career and compete uh, hopefully uh, all over the world and you know things like that. Yeah, we get a lot of big talent at American Top Team. Uh, Maz Vidal, correct? He's still he's there. Oh, of course, Andre, who else is over at American Top Team that um, that everybody would know? Oh, so of course, uh, Jorge's there, Jorge yeah. Masvidal, uh, Andre Arlovsky, Adriano Morano, the eight-time yeah. world yeah. featherweight uh, one champion. Um, you have uh, Tiago Santos, Pedro oh, Moises. Yeah. Tiago yeah. Moises. I mean, it's just stacked with, uh, yeah. uh, with some incredible uh, 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 talent. Yeah, what a good move, because I, I knew it, Andre, when, you know, from before, and what a difference, you know, just having the right team that fits your dynamic. I mean, it's, it's so, I, I suppose, so much of it is, so much of it is the chemistry with your team, um, but it's, it's cool to see that. One thing I want to talk about, and unfortunately, this is, as I was saying before we hit record, you know, dentistry is leading 
is a, is, a, is a leader, unfortunately, a dubious honor in many areas of unfulfillment, depression, drug abuse, divorce, you know, we're, we're not doing well. I'm sure you've heard the adage that, you know, the dentists are, have one of the highest suicide rates. It's better than it used to be. But I would imagine I, 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 that the, the agency and people that have been in situations like you have, whether in combat or high level uh, military operations, it's, it's some, somewhat challenging for you guys to, to be in one domain and the stress, maybe the existential stress that you would endure, and then coming back on a flight and being with your family or being matriculated back and up to life. Is there, is there such a thing in the FBI and your, amongst your colleagues that, that, you're, that you see or hear about that level of unfulfillment, either whether it's, you know, that stress, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, things like that. Is there any data that you know for, for your specific area of the FBI? So uh, for, that is an area of concern for, for the FBI, but uh, more so for, for law enforcement in general. Right. You know, that is a, that's an area that is, is a, uh, there's a growing trend that is really alarming and concerning. And there's been a lot of focus on overall health and wellness of our, you know, of our employees or law enforcement officers in, uh, in general. You know, part of that is, of course, the stress that uh, law enforcement officers, you know, including FBI special agents, face on a daily basis, uh, the pressures that uh, the job uh, uh, comes with, uh, of course, the the scrutiny and you know lately uh, law enforcement been uh, has been under a microscope and there's been a lot of hatred or resentment toward law enforcement uh, again in this and uh, not to compare dentistry to law enforcement right usually when uh, you know when people are calling uh, police it's not because things are going well uh, and as a result uh, you know you're 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 seeing the worst of uh, of uh, situations and, and in some cases the worst of humanity uh, and that does take a toll uh, on you know on the on the officer you know similar to you know to to, to Dennis so yeah you know you're as you're speaking George sort of cut you there's a commonality as you're speaking it's like right now there used to be a lot of gratitude or a lot more gratitude for the the, the people that were in um, law enforcement and and there is a rising tide of resentment whether it's narratives from a political standpoint of defunding the police and things like that and, and a higher level of scrutiny it's translating down into a what could appear to the average law enforcement officer as a lack of gratitude for the services you're providing much like in dentistry we oftentimes meet patients for the very first time and the first words out of their mouth are hi doc no offense but i hate dentists like, okay, you have a toothache, you're here, I'm trying to help. And that exactly. kind of that sub, that, that consistent droning of that message can wear you out. It's not just the, what the pressures you face, but the, the, the perception that you're not appreciated that can really destroy people's, you know, heart. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in, in both fields, again, you're not meeting people when they're at their happiest right. Uh, right. moment or a period of, uh, of their life. But so for us, it is a major concern. So we put a lot of focus on uh, what we call employee assistance. So really focused on overall uh, uh, health and wellness. Um, you know, and, it, it, and it's a co uh, uh, combined effort. So you know, from our perspective, you know, if, uh, if our employees are healthy, uh, focused, uh, you know, finding that uh, good work-life balance, 
we allow employees to exercise because nothing helps you know those those indicators that you talked about like uh, fitness you know it's not only is it the fountain of youth but it also is a is it really helps to deal with uh, stress uh, anxiety depression those kinds of things so uh, we provide uh, training facilities for our employees we provide them the opportunity to work out we have like folks during that, the day george or late yes. you, you can go right now if you had an hour lunch break and you can just go work out in your building where you are Yes, we have actually, we're very fortunate in our building, we have two great uh, uh, facilities. We have an indoor a gym and we have an outdoor gym. So for those that like to work indoors uh, and, you know, traditional type of cardio and weight training, we have a great facility. Those that like the CrossFit outdoor type uh, working out, we have a facility for them. Folks can go work out anytime during the day again. So we want to create an environment where employees are really recognizing the importance of fitness and then also the value that they have as an as an employee we bring nutritionists we do screening we do coaching all of those things that again if we take care of the body we're hoping that also translates that it's taking care of the mind and the, the two work uh, uh, together uh, we look for signs of you know uh, depression anxiety of course you know any any abuse uh, and our first response is uh, assistance before, you know, anything, anything else. That's awesome. Um, and it's also just like the, the order, like the, you know, I think one of the things that dentists have that um, unfortunately that, that is, doesn't sound like you guys have is we have, we don't have a community per se. The average dentist practices alone, you know, 60, 70% are alone and they, they, they lead a team. We have no um, training in the team, like how to lead and, and business training. So we're kind of cast out with an understanding of how to fix teeth, but not how to fix all the other things that we're faced to deal with. I mean, I look around, we had a summit last week in Nashville, there's 300 people, 300 dentists in the room. I said, did anybody here receive more than an hour of business training of the entire crowd? Only one person raised their hand. So, I mean, it's like, it, it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, never having a tennis lesson and, and going out and playing tennis, you're in self-defense mode. But I love what you said about the um, physical aspects. For me, you know, my physical condition depends on the, the season, but it goes from decent to good. But invariably, I never put it together whenever I start feeling bad emotionally or I start getting, you know, uh, having like anxiety, depression. It's invariably because I stopped my workout. And it's funny that that happens. Like if you if I stop the working out, it all everything unravels for me. And I can't be alone in that. No, it, it is absolutely uh, you're not alone in that. Uh, and there's a, there's uh, a lot of studies that. Uh, you know, that shows the connection between exercising and, and overall health and, uh, and wellness, not only mental, uh, I mean, physical, but also, you know, uh, mentally, the two go together, and then uh, you're more likely to get uh, to be on a, a healthy uh, diet or uh, eating plan, which, you know, adds to, you know, uh, to improvement. So for us, we look at it, it's a holistic approach. Um, because one of my concerns, you know, for my employees is that, you know, our profession, you know, there's a, a lot of focus on, you know, toughness, you know, we're expected to be very tough, you know, a lot of uh, uh, focus on, you know, being uh, physically and mentally strong, and, you know, you, no one wants to admit weakness and any of those things. So, you know, so 
tend to deal with problems internally or, or you know, compartmentalize them. So we're trying to create an environment where you know, we have that uh, buddy system or you know, that, you know, that support network, uh, which I think is one of the challenges that, uh, that dentistry is, is lacks is you don't have that support network where somebody can see an issue intervene and really try to you know bring some uh, you know uh, shed some light to it and, and help in the uh, you know in, in the process so um, you know that that might be something that yeah, a network could really provide uh, if, if within dentistry and is there is there a physical um, entrance exam that you have to pass in order to maintain your active status or I'm sorry is there is there a physical exam either a to enter the FBI? And then B to stay in the FBI. Can you get kicked out because you're not in the proper shape? Just yes. So uh, of course, uh, physical fitness is uh, uh, is mandatory to to join the FBI. So during the hiring process, uh, you have to pass uh, physical standards that uh, you know that uh, that are established for the for the position. When you go off to uh, Quantico, which where all FBI agents go to to uh, new agents training. Uh, you know, physical fitness is an uh, uh, integral part of that training, and then you have to pass uh, the physical fitness standards. Once you're assigned to a field office, we have a mandatory yearly physical fitness test that you have to pass um, to to maintain uh, your good standing as an FBI. What What do you have? Do you have to run, and how fast, or how far? Just out of yeah. curiosity. So the test involves uh, push-ups, sit-ups, sprint uh and a mile and a half uh run uh and uh that's just for the uh for the standard agent uh, right. at quantico we also have uh pull-ups uh, and then if you decide that you want to get on for example our uh, elite tactical team here the physical fitness standards are even uh, much higher, much uh, much tougher George can you pass those standards just between you and me and the listeners? <laughs> Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just I'm thinking. Yeah. No, I spent a, a good uh, portion of my FBI career on you know on SWAT and and things like that. So uh, uh, I could still easily have, have the have the tasks gotten easier or maintain their level of um, uh, standards throughout like the last ten years. No, the standards have uh, have not really changed. Uh, so they're the same standards when I joined the uh, FBI. You know, nearly 24 years ago now can you use those elastic things when you do the pull-ups though like where you step on them no Is that considered no okay just curious hey no, as a 50 year old dentist i think i'm pretty much parked in in my career but you never know I, this is pretty cool stuff well unfortunately uh uh, 37 is the uh, maximum age uh, for uh, for new agents. Got it. So, not that I was going to think of that anyway. That's awesome. So, um, you know, a big thing that comes up in our um, profession, and I want to just I want to I want to talk about this, is ransomware, cybercrime. Um, and uh, for those listening uh, to the podcast, you know, there's a couple insurances that are not very difficult to add on for business protection. And it's always amazing to me how many of the listeners don't have either EPLI, which is employment liability um, insurance, you know, for employment claims and cyber insurance. And now can you, because uh, I'm sure you, you said, you know, you, you mentioned in the decades of history of the FBI, um, there's something that you, are you guys the ones, the tip of the spear when it comes to 
foreign cyber attacks and stuff like that? Or does that fall on a different branch? No, it's, uh, it, it is us. So we look at the cyber threat from two different perspectives. So we, we define it into two categories and we attack the problem from two different kind of um, uh, perspectives. Uh, we look at the cyber uh, threat as either uh, criminally motivated or a national security threat. And the, what differentiates the two is the, the purpose. So a criminal hacker or a criminal cyber actor, I mean, their intent is to, uh, to profit from their illegal or criminal activity, where a national security uh, cyber actor or hacker is uh, intending to uh, degrade our national security, steal our secrets, economic espionage, you know, those types, uh, types of things. But we address uh, both. Ransomware is a, is a, a major threat that we're facing in the United States, uh, uh, any business entity is vulnerable uh, to that. And that's where someone installs either a, uh, um, a, a malware or a software, which then takes control over your system and then holds it ransom until you pay and to get all of your data or access back. Um, so from our perspective is when that occurs, you know, we ask the, the public uh, and uh, business entities to immediately reach out to us so that we can uh, help and in, uh, in investigate and identify who, who the perpetrators are and, uh, and bring them to, uh, uh, to justice while helping the entity regain control over their data or their systems and, and, and things like that. So it has become an extremely uh, profitable uh, criminal um, uh, act. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed at how municipalities are hitting, getting ransomware attacks and how quickly the payment happens. I mean, there was, it, it's incredible. Uh, so, so what percentage of these um, ransomware attacks are being conducted domestically versus internationally? Uh, for the ones that we work, and those are the, the very sophisticated, very difficult uh, type uh, ransomware, you know, they tend to be uh, foreign uh, yeah. hackers or foreign uh, cyber actors, but we're still able to identify them, pursue them, um, charge them, and then in some cases, even extradite them back Interesting. To, the to, to prosecute them. Um, again, for the criminal ones, the, the national security ones, you know, we do a variety of different things to protect our, uh, you know, our information and then make it more and more difficult for, uh, for the foreign state actors. But, you know, one of the things that I would encourage folks is to, uh, they, they realize they have a problem after, after the problem, right? So, of course. Um, you know, uh, making sure that you do have good uh, security system in place. Your backup shouldn't be on the same system as your network. It should be on a completely uh, standalone independent. So if, if your network is, uh, is attacked, um, that you, that you can get your data. When you see those quick payments is because folks uh, have lost all access, all of their data. They're vulnerable to that data being sold or, or erased and things like that. And in that case, they have no choice but to make the, uh, uh, the payment. So there are things that uh, businesses can do. And again, reaching out to the FBI uh, is definitely one of those things that can really help protect uh, as well as address the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the threat that we're, we're facing.
Yeah, that's wild. So when you say like, would that be like an offsite backup? Is that what you're talking about? Or just maybe onsite, but a physical different um, server or exactly your, your, uh, of course you should have a backup for all of your, you know, your data, your data and your services. But a lot of times the, that is on the same network as your, your main system. So it's both are hacked. Yeah. Once one is hacked, the other one is, uh, you know, it, it becomes compromised, you know, having good firewall, of course, you know, training your folks and no matter how good your, your, uh, uh, cybersecurity is, but it's if if an employee accidentally or mistakenly clicks on a, a link uh, on an attachment or something like that, um, you know you could be uh, you could have the best system and you're still going to be compromised. Um, you know, uh, remote access without a, a you know uh, uh, you know two way authentication or factor. You know mm -hmm. those are things that you. That, that you know you really should be investing in in protecting your data uh, your patients deserve that uh, as well as you know uh, you know your 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 company or business so um, you know folks aren't thinking about it until it's it's a little too late George are we seeing uh, a plateauing of ransomware or is it uptick what where are we at is it oh it's are, a it's a serious uptick serious uptick yes. So can you give me statistics over like the last five years? Is it doubled? Is it tripled? Like, I mean, I, mean, I couldn't give you specifics, but I would definitely tell you it's more than tripled. You know, the number wow. of cases that we're seeing now, it, it has definitely uh, uh, increased. Uh, and, and criminals are, are, are leaning toward it because it's, you know, you can do it remotely. You're not, uh, uh, it's not viewed the same as a violent crime. You know, things like that. So, well, and, there's a benefit you get to work from home too, which is yes. nice for them. You know, there's a lot uh, of talk and then, about, and the payment is much higher than, yeah, than, than if you're so. Is our cryptocurrencies being utilized a lot for this, or is crypto, uh, too trackable? I mean, because I know that there was a lot of, you know, my partner Peter, who's not on the call today, is a huge crypto advocate. I think today, as, as we record this, Bitcoin is getting its butt kicked. So I'm glad he's not on the call because I'd be teasing him about this. But it, are, is the ransom usually paid in those in cyber and cyber funds? The majority or, of the uh, ransomware is paid uh, or, or the ransom on uh, a ransomware case is paid uh, through uh, cryptocurrency. Interesting. Interesting. A lot of uh, both legitimate, of course, there's a significant legitimate uh, value and use for cryptocurrency. But uh, a lot of criminals are also using cryptocurrency. What's the, what is the FBI doing as a position? It's just, because it feels like the federal government's just in a limbo on crypto. There's not really much legislation regarding it, regulation, stuff like that. I know, I'm sure things are coming, but, you know, it, it's kind of, I, I wonder what the inner dialogues are around the FBI and if it's a good thing or a bad thing for the FBI to have to consider this other alternate form of money transfer. I think it's beyond uh, whether it's good or not or beneficial. I think you know our society and then just the the growth of cryptocurrency. You know, that conversation is long gone now. Right, right. Uh, crypto is here and it's going to be here. Financial institutions have now are adopting it. You know, the city of Miami is the first uh, virtual city. So for us, we recognize that whether we like it or or, or not, or agree or disagree it's irrelevant. So what we're doing is becoming as, as proficient as we possibly can so that we can investigate 
crimes that either utilize cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency is being, uh, you know, the, uh, the mechanism to, to uh, you know, conceal the criminal uh, 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 proceeds, uh, you know, things like that. So all we can do is become as, as, as proficient uh, and as uh, experienced as that we can uh, so that we can remain a, a, a force in, in upholding or, uh, you know, the, uh, the laws. Yeah, it's incredible. The business email compromise that you're talking about. I have a, a buddy of mine who I guess, I mean, these people are very smart. It's not yeah. just like, hey, open this link. They'll hack your email. They'll create a long dialogue with internal like, you know, hey, James, I hope everything's going well. You know, there's a new company in China that we're going to be buying our steel from. Oh, interesting. Two weeks later, hey, let's wire this money to Shanghai. I mean, I have a friend of mine who's a home builder that that actually happened. Oh, so it wasn't some random email. They built rapport. They, they were watching the emails going back and forth and then finally started a dialogue and the dialogue. And unfortunately, they wired out a lot of money. It's, it's happening. I mean, just in my small circle, it's incredible the amount of wire fraud. Incredible. Uh, absolutely. You know, all they got to do is, you know, once they have access, they got to just you know, alter the, uh, the account or the wiring information. And before you know it, you know, a business is wiring, whether it's a legitimate payment or, or not into a different account. So for those, you know, if, if folks report it to the FBI, if we, if we get that information within 48 hours, we have a much better chance of freezing that money. Interesting. Even interest. international? Oh, absolutely. Especially mm -hmm. international. No way. Yeah, because the majority of that money goes to uh, either Singapore or Hong Kong. We have great partnerships and relationships with our foreign counterparts there. Mm -hmm. We can freeze that money. But once it leaves, you know, when you're at the 72 hour mark, that money is already now dispersed into a number of different accounts Got across it. the world. And as a result, you know, being able to to freeze or or uh, or recover that uh, that money becomes uh, impossible. So when that happens, it, that needs to be, uh, you know, quickly referred and, and it goes to uh, the Internet Complaint Center or IC3 and you can quickly report that. And, and uh, as I mentioned, we have offices all over the world Interesting. start that process to try to freeze it and then the and then start to recover it. Interesting. And that's also in the domain of the FBI. Yes. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's wild to me. Truly, are a, a global organization. Yeah, I see the future being super digital for the FBI. I mean, it's incredible. Like, if you guys are the tip of the spear with that stuff. So, what what is then? Um, where does the what is the 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 short answer for what the CIA does then? What is this? How does the CIA differ from the FBI? So the the CIA is an intelligence agency. Uh, not a law enforcement agency, where the FBI were both an intelligence and a law enforcement agency. So, you know, the CIA is, is an external agency. Um, so, you know, so the CIA does not operate in the United States. They're not allowed to collect intelligence or target U.S. citizens in the United yeah. States. So their focus is external and it's against our, uh, you know, those countries and individuals, or, or I should say organizations that represent a threat to the United States. So overseas, we work very, uh, very closely and collaboratively, but in one aspect, you know, their goal is to get uh, um, others to, to commit espionage against their country. And our job is to prevent Americans from becoming spies. 
So you can see how uh, you know that it's different, but it 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 uh, supports uh, you know one supports the other. That's awesome. So in my mind, like what you do and what you really do, it's like I, I in my mind, it's like a combination of like Men in Black plus James Bond. You know, I, I really do feel that way. Um, when you first came into the practice, I was like. I was flattered because I'm like, this guy probably has like a computer program. We can pull up every little thing I've ever done. Like if I sneezed the wrong way, you'd know about it. So I was like, I must be pretty clean. Uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't say this. I wish we did, but uh, you know, uh, uh, we, you know, we don't. Um, well, you got it, Google, George. You can just yeah, go on Google no, and see all my reviews. Uh, three hours and read all 700 <laughs> reviews. <laughs> exactly. You know, Google can get you uh, anything that uh, that you want. No, you know our. Uh, as large as the FBI is, you know, there's not enough folks for us to, you know, to do any of that. We're really focused on, on truly protecting the American public and upholding the, uh, the Constitution. Um, but I will tell you, Greg, there's nowhere you can go in this world uh, and say those three letters without people immediately recognizing what they represent and what, it, what they stand for. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, it's partly, uh, um, well, it's mostly due to the idea that of, of the accomplishments the FBI's had, um, but also Hollywood has helped that a lot too. It's definitely, um, uh, you know, when you said you were going to become a dentist and you wanted to, you craved adventure, I think you picked the right field, buddy, because <laughs> I, I, I love dentistry and what I love most about it is the fact that um, it brings people like you into my life and I get to serve them and, and do that, but um uh, the, the career you've had and the career you're going to have, they're just pretty damn exciting. If you ask me, I'm, I'm excited. I'm thankful that the agency has people like you and our country has people like you because uh, that's what helps us sleep well at night. I appreciate it. I'm very fortunate. I have had an incredible career and I've been very, very uh, lucky in that, uh, in that regard. I've gotten to do and work on cases that uh, people read in, uh, uh, in books and see in movies and things like that. So you're right. I'm, I've been very, very fortunate in that regard. So uh, what's next? What you said, this is the second wave of your career, the MMA thing. So you, um, do you really, do you see yourself, uh, do you have to get, are you going to be time limited out of the FBI? Is there a forced retirement that comes for you? Like, like other law enforcement agencies? What yeah. So we have mandatory retirement at, uh, at 57. Uh, but, you know, for me, I anticipate, uh, you know, uh, retiring in the uh, in the near future, and then really focusing on uh, on my professional uh, fighting career. Cool. I'm, I'm training for the World Masters in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in Vegas in September. You know, and next year I'm hoping to uh, to focus uh, all of my effort and uh, time into into that. Uh, I'm currently ranked, and my goal is to, of course, win the world championship and. Uh, you know, under the banner of uh, American Top Team. So I have a few sponsors and hope to, you know, secure a few more. And then, you know. Hey, count me in, buddy. I want to, I'm saying it on recorded uh, podcast. I am sponsoring you. I had I had my logo on Andre's shorts uh, for the Travis Brown fight. Literally lost my voice at the, in the front row. <laughs> I remember uh, that fight. Uh, that was an oh, incredible performance by yeah. uh, by Andre. Yeah, so, you know, so that for me, I'm, I, I hope to, you know, turn that, uh, you know, that phase of, uh, you know, my professional career and, and represent an American top team and see how far I can, uh, I can take that. And, and is, is the book coming though, George, all kidding aside? Yes, the book, uh, you know, once I retire, uh, I will uh, uh, 
focus on uh, on writing a, a book about my experience of uh, you know spending seven months with one of the most brutal dictators of our modern time and uh, and you know try to capture you know the uh, you know that experience as well as you know the you know the the bureau's success. But um, I'm right now my job between my two jobs because I do consider them both full time jobs. The opportunity to write a book would be would be impossible. So that's something I'll focus on when I retire. That's awesome. Yeah, I'd love to link you and uh, Patrick, but David together with your Syrian background, both of your love for the country, first generation uh, Americans, and uh, literally, you know, literally made it the American dream. Both of you guys, I see a lot of commonalities. That'd be very cool. And he'd love be. you. I look, yeah, I'd love I'd love to 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 meet him. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to mention it next time I see him. Well, listen, George, I really appreciate it. If there's anything else, is how does the audience stay in touch with you? How can we follow you? Is it an Instagram thing or if people want to just stay connected to what you're doing? Absolutely. So uh, thanks for uh, remembering that. You know, again, as, a, as an athlete with sponsors, um, uh, you know, uh, one of my responsibilities is to, to promote and thank my sponsors. So uh, folks can, uh, can follow me on, uh, on Instagram. It's uh, George Pirro. Uh, underscore att for american top team and uh you know the more sponsors or the more followers i get uh, the the happier the sponsors are and the more sponsors i can get so if any of your followers could get uh, like the yeah. podcast you know please follow yeah for sure i'll put that in the show notes as well it's george piro underscore att we'll put in the in the show notes as well well, listen, buddy, I really appreciate this. This is, um, I was so thankful. I was kind of nervous when you're at my office. I was like, is there any way you would do this? And I was be like, hey, uh, I, I thought you would say like, listen, love you, buddy. But yeah, dental <laughs> podcast, come on, man. No, but, no, no. Uh, this was a privilege. So thank you for yeah. allowing me to be on uh, on your show. Yeah, that's awesome, buddy. Thanks again for your time. Right. And uh, I'll see you we'll, soon. Yeah, man. Make sure you're, uh, yeah, I'll see you soon here at the office. Okay. We'll okay, see buddy. You. All the best. Thank you. Bye.